Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 32 as we come in our series to this classic psalm. Before we do that, though, I have to do a couple of things. I have to do something I didn't think I'd have to do, uh, but uh, make a couple of edits to what I said this morning. A couple of edits, I suppose. One edit being uh, I uh, misunderstand my own age. I think I mentioned it was about maybe 15 or 16 years ago that I was in fourth grade, and that's simply not the truth. I I don't know my own age, so uh, you can tack on a few uh, a few more years to that, uh, maybe even a decade or so to that, and you might get something close to the truth. Uh, the second thing, of course, is that uh, it appears that clock back there is not quite uh, accurate, so I'm going to have to take this off and um, make sure I'm, uh, I'm on time here. Um, I, I rely very heavily on that, and when... Uh, when it's not uh, on on par, uh, uh, well, this morning happens. Appreciate your patience nonetheless. Uh, so we come to Psalm 32. We come to this psalm that uh, is classic. I know I memorized portions of it as a teenager. It's uh, beautiful. It's uh, real. It's David's words. It's God's words. Let's hear them now. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, with much be curbed, with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's in the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon our time this evening. Lord, we come as a forgiven people. Yet we come as a people who are called like David to confess. Hear our confession. Give us your word that promises so much and delivers on it. And make us a forgiven people who praise you forevermore. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our, our culture today says that there's a lot of problems that you have. And maybe chief among them it, is that you have a lot of false guilt. You're guilty about things you shouldn't be guilty about. You shouldn't be guilty about eating all those cookies. They just look so good. It felt so right. You shouldn't be guilty about getting that new car. You're amazing. You shouldn't be guilty about trading in your house for a new one. You shouldn't be guilty about trading in your spouse for a new one. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be fulfilled. You don't need to feel too guilty. 
Now, it's true that sometimes we can be over hypersensitive. It's true, it's true that there can be false guilt, but I think there's something a little bit wrong when most of our guilt is assumed to be false. Most of the work of our conscience is assumed to be seared. I don't think that's the case, and it ought not to be the case, certainly in the church. And it's so refreshing to be here at church, but we do, as I said this morning, something very countercultural. We confess our sin. You will not find any other organization on earth that confesses sin. Only the church confesses her sin. And David teaches us in, in, in this psalm. He teaches us in Psalm 32. He had some devastating bout with guilt. He had some great sin. And the beautiful thing about David here is that he doesn't give us the details. I know you might want the details. You might want to know, oh, David, give us all the lurid details of your sin. There's a certain kind of Christian that really obsesses over the details of problems and failures and flaws. David doesn't do that, which makes it universal. In a sense, we don't know what David's particular sin was. Everybody wants to say, is it Bathsheba? It could have been. I don't know. We don't have an answer here. Some sin. We can't be sure. Instead, let's deal with what the text actually says. I think it says three things. Three things. Really, you'll see there's more than three, but but three things. Three, three aspects of it. First, misery. Misery. The first couple of verses are kind of the, uh, the, the conclusion, the kind of end point that gets stated first. So we're going to skip those two and get back to them. But you see the misery here really in verse 3 and verse 4. I'll read them to you. Look there. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He says... When was I most miserable? It wasn't when I was caught. It wasn't when I was doing the thing. It was when I was silent about it. The time of silence, which is what he what he means by that, of course, is unconfessed sin. He says, it wore me out. My bones wore out. My body was breaking down. He says in verse 4, it was weighty, day and night your hand. You can imagine the kind of heavy weight on him. It was wearying, it was weighty, it was withering. Last part of verse 4, if you look at the ESV footnote, you'll see they tell you the Hebrew, my vitality was changed. Literally, my vitality was changed into the drought of summer. No rain. In other words, he had draining fatigue. And so among everything else, what does David have here? Insomnia. Day and night, he couldn't sleep. He has this draining lentness. You know, you, you've felt that before. Where, where you, you, you've worked and you just can't, you, you're just lethargic. You can't do anything. It just blah. If you want to translate verse 4 as... I became blessed. You can. I'll give you permission for that. And then, of course, verse 3 is simply, I was exhausted all the time. You might call this the psychosomatic effects of unconfessed sin. David shows us here that guilt is not simply a, I did a bad thing. Sometimes unconfessed guilt simply leads to these sort of things. Now, look, I'm not saying that if you ever felt tired, it's because you, you didn't confess some secret sin. No, 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 no. Don't, don't mishear me. 
But sometimes it can be the root cause. Sometimes it is simply that simple. The story is told of the baseball guy, the great, greatest batter, in my opinion, in baseball history, Ted Williams, played for the Red Sox back in the day. He was retired in many years. He was back visiting the Red Sox front office up in Boston. And that they told him, you need to go see Helen. Helen had been the, still was kind of the telephone operator. And she was one of those people who was always happy at her work and that sort of thing. And she knew Ted and Ted knew her. And he went over there. He saw her. They hugged. And, and uh, as, as they were hugging, there was a Red Sox official, some executive nearby, and he noticed that Helen was just crying. He was just, oh, tears were coming down as they were hugging. And after Ted Williams leaves, he, he asked Helen, why were you crying so much? Were you, just, you, you were that overcome by Ted Williams, weren't you? She said, no, he was standing on my foot. It hurt really bad. It was just that. It was, it was, no, big, it was no big emotional moment. It was simply the pain. And David says the misery could simply be because of his, it wasn't his, this case, the fact that he didn't deal with his sin. Guilt can be destructive. But, but David says as well, there's not just the misery, but there's actually mercy in the misery. You see, this is what he, this is what he means in verse 4. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. Whose hand? God's hand. You see, the misery was miserable. It was awful. But even in the misery, whose hand was in the misery? God's hand. The Lord himself was mixed up in the pain. Sometimes, friends, the, the misery of sin is actually a gift from God. It's actually a gift from God. That divine pressure to drive us to confession. That divine pressure of a father who cares for his children. To want them to come and confess and forgive. Now, God may prey on your conscience. He may stalk you day and night. He may not flinch to use painful measures because he is so good to you. He doesn't want to be, you to be comfortable and happy and footloose and fancy free in your sin. Mercy even in the misery. That's the first thing David shows us here. He shows us simply that there's misery with unconfessed sin. But second, he teaches us in the psalm something of the vocabulary of sin and the anatomy of forgiveness. The vocab of sin and the anatomy of forgiveness. The anatomy, even as I title it here, of mercy. You see this in the, in the first couple of verses, verse 1 and verse 2. You see it as well in verse 5. But let's start in verse 1 and verse 2. He says, blessed is the man, the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You'll count them up here. And if you count up the sin words that David uses, he uses four sin words in these two verses. Let's work through them. Sometimes it's very helpful just to work with the words. Verse one, transgression. This is a word you might translate as rebellion. It's not really trespassing. Rather, it's refused to, refusing to be subject to rightful authority. It's refusing to be a citizen of God's kingdom. It's saying, I'm going to thumb my nose at you, God. I'm going to rebel my way, God, not your way. It is this transgression. In fact, if you look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find that this is the verb, this is the word used 
to speak of political rebellion, political revolution. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled. They transgressed against Israel. And it shows us, therefore, that there's an attitude of rebellion that lurks beneath our heart. It lurks, rather, in our sin. This is verse 5. I will confess my transgressions, my rebelliousness. And then David mentions in verse 1 just simply sin. This is the common word for sin. It's mentioned about 600 times in the Old Testament. It's the the one that you all know because every pastor talks about it. It's the, the idea of sin as a missing the mark, missing a goal. You set a goal, you fail to hit it. You aim the arrow at the mark and you miss the target. You fail, in other words, simply fail. That's it. It's a coming short of God's purpose. You you find this, for example, in in Proverbs. Proverbs 19, verse 2. Desire without knowledge is not good, and whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Sins. There's sin. You miss your way. You might think, if you want an example of it, just watch a college basketball game. Or if you're like me, just go out there to the basketball hoop and try to to shoot a basket. What will happen? If you're me, what will happen is that the ball won't even hit the rim. What do you call that? Air ball. Air ball. And it's always, you know, you make fun of air ball. You miss the mark. Totally. It fell short. The ball didn't even go far enough to hit the rim. That's sin. We fall short. Next, verse 2, iniquity, the third of our four sin words. The the root here suggests that there's a kind of a bent, a twistedness to sin. There's a making crooked, a kind of distortion, a perversion. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me whenever I go to a restaurant is those occasions where you sit down and immediately what I do is I put my elbows on the table and what happens? table rocks. I take them off. The table rocks back. I do put them down. The table rocks over. What's the issue? The issue clearly is that one leg of the table is crooked. One leg of the table is not level with the rest. And so what happens? Well, the the waitress comes over and she puts one of those little little napkins, the little coasters beneath it. That never solves anything. But, But she pretends like it does. And I pretend like it does. I don't talk to her over and over again about it. It doesn't solve a problem because the table is still crooked. The table is Perverted. The table is distorted. The table's bent. And it's a silly example, of course, but to a certain degree, that's iniquity. Something good that is not quite there. Something good that is twisted. Unbalanced. So we have transgression. We have this rebellion. We have this sin, the missing the mark. We have this iniquity, the the twisting or the distortion. Then finally, uh, in whose spirit there is no deceit. The fourth word, deceit. Denial, hiding, excusing, this or that favorite sin. Now, those are the four words. Why does David give us four words? Why don't we just say, you messed up? You messed up. Well, these verses aren't just to give you a, a new sense of the vocabulary list of sin that you can now use with everybody. Rather, these verses are all about the joy of the forgiven saint. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the one 
all about the exuberant joy. But here's the thing. You'll never get the joy unless you realize that sin is not just breaking a rule. Sin is not some semi-naughty action you did. Sin is not simply some uh, minor peccadillo, some oopsie you made. Sin is a multifaceted octopus that gets its tentacles and grabs you. Sin is like a multifaceted, complicated monster under your bed that comes out and takes you. You must see, in other words, sin is treason. You rebel. You like to rebel. We like to rebel. Sin is failure. We fail. We we simply don't achieve. Sin is twisted. Sin is duplicitous. You miss the mark of what God requires. You are in revolt against the only true king. You excel in covering up the cancer and you twist everything to make it all fit you. And if you see that about sin, don't you realize I mean, this is what Christ says. She who is forgiven little loves not that much, but she who is forgiven much loves much. The greater the magnitude you see your sin, the greater the magnitude you love Jesus Christ. I can almost guarantee you this is the golden rule, really, in one sense, of the Christian life. If you don't think you sin that much, you won't love Jesus that much. You won't care about him that much. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. Now, David, what's fascinating here is that David does not just give us a vocab lesson when it comes to the negative. He gives us a vocab lesson when it comes to the positive. He gives us a beautiful picture in these first two verses of the anatomy of forgiveness. Just work through it with me again. Just go back to the top. We'll start there and go back through it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The rebellion is forgiven. What does that mean? This word forgiven, it it implies a kind of lifting up, a kind of carrying away. It's like relief from a burden. You know in those movies when there's a fire and there's some piece of wood that falls on somebody or some great metal thing that falls on somebody and they're trapped under it and their legs jam, they can't get out. What do they need? They need somebody to come and help them. The firefighter comes in and they rush over and they they lift the weight. That's the picture here in my Philly Poor illustration. That's the picture of forgiveness. Forgiveness is like lifting up the burden so you can, you can get out, you can be saved. Second, cover. Whose sin is covered. It's interesting, if you look down at verse 5, David uses the same verb, but this time he says, I didn't cover. There's a, there's a weird paradox here. David says, when I didn't cover my iniquity, my twistedness, you covered my sin. When I didn't cover, you covered. When you uncover your sin, God covers it. When you cover your sin, it remains uncovered by God. And then David says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. In other words, God does not hold us liable. And so you might think of forgiveness as a dismissal of a debt, a debt that's dismissed with. Do you see the picture here? As as multi-tentacled as sin is, as octopus-like sin might be, God's forgiveness is even more 
like a diamond. It is more multifaceted than sin. The anatomy of sin, the vocabulary of forgiveness, relief from a burden, hiding, covering of a record, dismissal of a debt. And the question is, who does this? How does God do this? If rebellion is lifted, who carries it? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 24, he draws on Isaiah 53, verse 12. He says, Jesus himself carried our sins in his body on the tree. He carried our sins. Where does God forgive your sin on the tree in his son? If sin's covered, how does God cover your sin? It's Colossians 2.14. He erased the certificate of debt that was against us. He takes it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. The same place, Calvary. And if you're not charged with twistedness, with perverseness, who pays for that? Isaiah 53, verse 6, but the Lord made the punishment, the chastisement, the punishment fall on him, on him, the, what, that all of us deserved. Jesus is the one who carries the load. He erased the record. He paid the debt. And yet, David wants us even to go beyond this vocabulary lesson. He wants to go beyond even understanding the depth of sin, the depth of forgiveness. He says in verse 5, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We have to realize here what confession is and what confession is not. Since we do it every week, we confess our sin every week. What are we doing when we confess our sin? It's very important to realize that David is saying here, Confession is a condition of his forgiveness, but not a cause of his forgiveness. Confession is so important. I'll repeat it again. Confession is is a condition of David's forgiveness, but not a cause of his forgiveness. It's essential, but God does not forgive because you confessed. God does not forgive because you confessed all your sins. In fact, forgiveness only comes from the one who has been wronged. And yet David says here, I will confess. Now, confession is needed, but it's not the cause. David does not say, because I confessed, you forgave. I mean, think about it. Let's say you have uh, cancer. Let's say for weeks and months you deny you have cancer. You refuse to acknowledge you have cancer. And then finally... And they show you the scans and you admit it. Your confession does not cure your cancer. It doesn't do anything for your cancer. But until you admit it, until you confess it, you can't, you can't, go, you can't get the chemotherapy. You can't go and see the doctor that you need to go see. Your admission is not making the cure, but it is a necessary step, a preliminary. And, and beyond this confession... Beyond this confession, listen to what David says. He he revels in verse 5. You forgave. The the Hebrew there is emphatic. You, God, you are the one who forgave the iniquity, the guilt of my sin. Part of the problem for us is that we don't have that kind of emphatic joy with forgiveness. We kind of expect God to forgive. That's his job. We expect God. We don't ponder the sheer miracle of a forgiving God. He has become about as impressive to us as a box of Honey Nut Cheerios. Not that impressive at all. Boring. 
But uh, friends, you need to remember what the prophet Micah says. He burst out in Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over rebellion. Do you not realize the incredibleness, the amazingness of God's forgiveness, his super abundant grace to you? There was once a convict who had just been discharged from the jail, a faraway jail. And, and his whole life had kind of just blown up when he got, when he got arrested. It, it ruined his family. It heaped shame on them. And he lost contact with them. Silence for many years. But he kept hoping against hope that, that maybe they had tried to write, but they just couldn't afford the postage. Maybe they tried to write, but they couldn't write. They're too illiterate. Maybe they didn't know how to write. And so he had hatched a plan before his sentence was up. He wrote a letter home and he explained how he would be on this train on a certain day. And the train would pass by their little farm and he would pass by a certain tree on that little farm. And if they could forgive him, all they needed to do was go hang one right ribbon on that tree. So he would see it if he passed by. And if it was not hanging there, he would just ne never talk to them again. And the train was coming down the pike. It was coming down the road. It was coming towards his parents' farm. It was coming towards the family farm. And he, he couldn't bear it. He, he, was, he was so in, intense. He was so worried. He asked the guy next to him, could you just look out there and see if there's a, a white ribbon on this tree up here after the turn? And the, the, the turn came. And uh, his, his buddy next to him, yeah, his, his eyes began to fill with tears. He said, it's all right. The whole tree is full of ribbons. The whole tree is full of white ribbons. The whole tree is full of forgiveness. That's God's forgiveness. That's a tiny mark, a tiny illustration of the superabundance of God. You forgave my sin. Do you know that forgiveness? Have you ever tasted that kind of forgiveness? Well, thirdly, not just the misery, not just the vocabulary, but the call to joy, the call to joy. This is in the last section, verse 6 all the way through verse 11. He, he begins here by uh, giving us a, a couple of lessons of joy. Joy has lessons. The joy of forgiveness leads into a therefore. Therefore, let everyone who's godly pray, offer prayer to you. Pray. You're the hiding place. I mentioned Wednesday evening in, in the prayer meeting that this may be where Corey Ten Boom got her, uh, her title from. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You see, God does not just forgive you so that you can go sin and ignore him the next day. He forgives you that you might hide in him, that you might find refuge in him, that you might pray to him. Every forgiven person should be eager to seek God in prayer to enjoy this, this reconciled relationship with him. Because as you have this forgiveness, notice what verse 7 says, you have a security. You have this security. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Not that you're immune from failure, not that you're immune from sin, but you're preserved through sin. You're preserved, not immune. Not that you're never overtaken, but you're not overwhelmed in the rush of great waters. In other words, as you confess, as you receive forgiveness, you are a stable believer. 
And I suppose the second lesson here is in verse 8 and verse 9. There's a little bit of, of argument in the scholarship on who's talking here. Is it, is it David saying I? Is it God saying I? I'm not sure the application really matters who is speaking here. The point is still the same. And the point is that you're not to be a mule. You're not to be a mule. You're not to be a beast. You're a human being made in God's image, forgiven by Christ. You're not meant to be mulish. Do you know what mulish is? You're stubborn. You're stubborn. You're thick. You're dense. Don't be a dense, thick, stubborn Christian. Don't make it necessary for God to turn the heat up on you and make you miserable before you confess your guilt. This is the point that David's saying. He's saying, what does it mean to be a mule in the church as a Christian? The mules, the mule Christians are the ones who don't confess sin. The ones who don't like confessing sin. The ones who are hard-hearted towards God's convicting work. He says, don't be a mule. Don't be forced to have to, don't, don't make God have to use his bit on you, his bridle on you. And yet, of course, David doesn't end there, does he? He doesn't end. He ends in verse 10 and verse 11. He says, joy, sorrow and joy, many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. You see, he compares the wicked and the righteous. Blessed, joyful, Steadfast love surrounded. Who are the righteous ones? Well, think about the whole psalm. Who are the righteous ones? It's the forgiven ones. You see, the contrast here is not between the wicked and the perfect. It's not between the wicked, those who always sin, and the, the perfect, those who never sin. It's between the wicked and the forgiven. Do you know, therefore, Christian, you can never get beyond the reach of God's forgiveness you can often never get beyond your need of God's forgiveness. You never get beyond the reach of his grace. You never get beyond the need of his grace. That cures our pride. It cures our despair. It allows us to be, like David here, joyful Christians. And shout for joy. And so here's your homework this week. Your homework is very simple. Confess. Be forgiven. And shout. Shout for joy. Shout for joy. Oh, you upright in heart. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come as those who have been shown our, our guilt, our sin, our iniquity, our rebelliousness, our missing the mark, our twistedness, and yet those who've been shown the marvelousness of your grace in Jesus Christ, we pray that you would give us more of a taste of that forgiveness, that you would make us uh, quick to confess, even quicker to receive your mercy and our misery and that we would be joyful all our days. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the master of mercy. Amen.